the women had an hourglass figure. They had feet that pointed straight ahead, but their uh, hips would wiggle as they walk. And so when I'm in the airport with my wife, I always tell her I'm studying the patellofemoral alignment. <laughs> That's what you're doing. Women. <laughs> do you think I could get away with <laughs> Yeah. Let me just jot that down. Do that. And I said, look at her. Look at that wiggle. And she's looking at me like she's going to hit me. Welcome to the Ortho Show with Mika Nichols and Ben Young. Today we have Dr. Lonnie Paulus, one of the pioneers of sports orthopedic surgery. He's been heavily involved with research throughout his career, having published around 100 articles, 47 book chapters, and given well over 300 presentations. Throughout his career, Dr. Paulus has worked as an orthopedic consultant for numerous professional sports organizations, including the Seattle Mariners, and is currently the orthopedic consultant for the U.S. freestyle ski team. So welcome, Dr. Lonnie Paulus. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate being on. So today, Lonnie, you're going to talk to us about anterior knee pain and patella dislocation. As I'm sure you're aware, patella dislocations account for the majority of dislocations. And while maybe not as common as a cylinder, it's potentially more disabling. So over to you, Dr. Paulus. Yes, I think, I think Ben, that uh, it's probably the most common malady, at least anterior knee pain and patella pain, which can be associated with dislocations or subluxations. That's the most common knee malady we see in a knee clinic like ours. And uh, we see it early on in younger individuals based on their genetic makeup. And then we see it much later for those that have made it through the, uh, the years and, and it's basically a worn out patellofemoral joint. So you see a whole array of those. I, and it is a continuum, even though you see a lot of people with recurrent patella dislocations, uh, there are far more people with anterior knee pain, but yet the, the uh, approach is pretty much the same, at least now in the, in years past, we always ran and hid from people with anterior knee pain, but I think we've got some really good answers uh, today. And uh, we can treat a whole host of problems in the patellofemoral joint, much less invasive, by the way, than than uh, in the past. And I think that um, a lot of uh, problems are still created by orthopedists who are still applying some of the older principles. But uh, hopefully that'll change in the future as more people so, become l- aware of what's, what's been learned. Can you expand on that, Lonnie? What, what would you regard as the older principles in, in uh, treating well, this? Well, basically, and that, and, that, and that means me, is uh, <laughs> I was there. Uh, basically, uh, early on, someone would report with anterior knee pain, and, and you would never, you would really never want to touch those people because you, you had no answer for them. And, and so if you operated on them, you made them weaker, you didn't correct the problems that were really at hand, at least didn't understand them. And so the, the, the old axiom was never treat anybody with an anterior knee pain, uh, send them off to the therapist and forget about them. And so the physical therapist inherited them, uh, which wasn't always the right thing either. But, uh, I, that continuum could also lead to the next thing, which was really a subluxating patella where people would turn or step and the patella would slip and come right back on. And if you carefully uh, queried the patient, you'd find that indeed that was happening, not infrequently, 
and they could feel that. Uh, and that's just uh, leads to the next thing, which was a complete dislocation. In other words, the patella would go all the way off. The, the anatomy related with this continuum of, in, of uh, complaints is, is, is pretty much the same. It's up to us as orthopedists uh, to uh, look at the anatomy and bring together the entire story that that patient presents. And we have a lot more knowledge about that now. And, and some of the older procedures that included uh, uh, making the patella look more like a V, in other words, you, would, you had a flat patella, so you would bend it in the middle, or making the, patella, the femoral sulcus deeper uh, with an osteotome, um, and, uh, or moving the tibial tubercle, uh, sometimes uh, way out of whack. All of these surgeries really would prevent the dislocation, sometimes the subluxations, and never the anterior knee pain. And so they were uh, marginally successful. And uh, along came arthroscopic surgery with a former partner of mine, Bob Metcalf, who was one of the pioneers, me and Lanny Johnson. And uh, he invented a procedure called lateral retinacular release. And he would, with these patients, he would get x-rays and usually it's called a sunrise. Uh, uh, and the patella would be tilted or subluxed laterally. And so the logic was, well, let's go over and cut the lateral retinaculum and that way the patella will center and uh, they won't have as many problems. Well, that worked for some people, uh, and some people it didn't. And, and, uh, when, as I joined Bob Metcalf, the lateral release was a very, very popular surgery. And uh, it was, uh, I called it the harvest of the lateral retinaculum period. And uh, people with knee pain would always get lateral releases. And uh, I ended up seeing a lot of patients that were made worse by that lateral release. And so myself and one of my former fellows uh, called in uh, several hundred patients because they were... Uh, rather uh, available all around Salt Lake City. And uh, we started to sort through was the, well, who had a good result? Who had a bad result? What was the difference in them? Could we tell? And uh, indeed, we came out with a study that basically said, look, if, if your patella is subluxed laterally and it's tilted laterally, that doesn't necessarily mean the entire patellar retinaculum is too tight. And so why would you make it looser if it's possibly too loose, which is what happened. And so these people that had subluxating and dislocating patella uh, also had just hyperlaxity of the knee and tissues in general. And even though they were tight to one side, they were loose everywhere else. And if you think about the uh, patella retinaculum as a circle of tissue, well, if you break the circle on one side, you're going to make it loose on all sides. And that's exactly what happened. So these patients that were made worse uh, continued to have more and more dislocations and more and more pain. So it, in those days, I decided that the answer was, okay, we're going to go back and repair that lateral retinaculum. And we're going to line the kneecap up with by moving the tubercle, a McKay-type procedure, which was popular, as you know, back then. And that would center the patella in the sulcus, and then we would restore the restraints, both medial and lateral, so that they had what were called normal patellar glides. 
And that would work. And it worked. And I was quite proud of myself. I thought, geez, look, I'm taking care of all these people that were made so bad. But after a while, I noticed that uh, some of the lateral releases that were a good result started coming back several years later that they were back where they started. And I also noted that some of the surgeries that I thought were very successful uh, when they came back had patellofemoral arthritis and not just that, but they now had uh, over uh, compressed the medial compartment or lateral compartment, uh, depending on the overall mechanical axis of the knee. And so in the long term, I'd actually made them worse because now they had lower compartment arthritis. So we took that group. So we took, uh, so we took uh, a, uh, a group of the uh, proximal distal patellar realignments, they were called. We brought them back at five to eight years and found out that uh, at least half were okay. They didn't dislocate, but they had painful knees and they had more compartmental arthritis throughout the knee. So in looking at that, I uh, started looking at what they were doing in the pediatric field because a lot of times recurrent patella dislocations would occur in the immature uh, patient. And there was a fellow by the name of Peter Stevens here in Salt Lake City that was uh, successful in treating these, these kids. And in fact, uh, it's an interesting story because Peter and I went to school together and we, and we uh, went to our residency together and a patient, I sent uh, Peter a patient that had recurrent patellar dislocations that was just barely an adolescent. And I had explained that we needed to do some type of a proximal realignment and that their growth center was near close, that they would be okay for a tubercle uh, uh, move. We could cut the tubercle and move it over. Peter said, well, that's all sounds good, but he's just doing the wrong surgery. So he sent the patient back to me and that's what the patient reported. And of course, as most surgeons are, we'd have no ego. (laughs) That's the best part of the story so far. (laughs) Yeah. And so I called Peter and I said, Peter, what the hell are you talking about? I'm doing the wrong surgery. I've been doing this surgery for years now and it works great. He says, well, no, you're not looking at it right. And he started uh, educating me on what they really look like, what really the pediatric orthopedists look for, which was mechanical access from the hip all the way to the foot. And, and he was talking about what were called derotation osteotomies, where they would cut the tibia, rotate the foot, they'd cut the femur, rotate the femur, and they'd line everything up like the pieces of a puzzle. And these kids would do much better. And so I thought about it and I thought, God, that was pretty aggressive, a floating knee, right? And, and so I started bringing back these patients that weren't so good after my surgeries. And sure enough, they had what was called miserable malalignment. And that was that the hips had rotated in, the tibias had rotated out. And I had simply brought the tubercle over to the femoral sulcus, which was already internally rotated, which generally would overload the medial compartment of the knee and create a, a huge medial uh, uh, compartment arthritis. And so it became more and more apparent that Peter was very right and uh, that uh, the proximal distal patellar realignment couldn't just be done willy-nilly, that it, there was only uh, very few people that you would do that with. And usually it was to move the ones, uh, to correct people that already had it done. So once again, I did a study, and uh, that's the one advantage of having fellows so you can abuse them. Um, I uh, brought back a 
I think a couple hundred patients. And I took about 20 patients and I performed Peter's surgery on them and uh, compared them to about 100 patients of which had the same alignment, but I had done proximal distal and they were a two to five year surgery that I did was light years ahead of the uh, results that I got with my former surgery. And to the point that many of those people came back and wanted their knee fixed like the other guy. And so that started a quest, at least in my mind, of, of trying to sort through all of the various problems that a person will bring to the table and how to find those and how to correct them properly. So now when you get a person that comes in with a recurrent patellar dislocation, if they haven't already been operated on or had a lateral retinacular release performed, um, you have a chance to help them with rehabilitation and not surgery. And what I mean by that is if you, if we logically look at, let's start with women because it's more, more common in women, but it also happens in men. But a woman has a very broad pelvis for childbirth. And in order to keep her center of gravity underneath her spine, her hips rotate in. They're called anniversion, as you know. So her hip, their hips anniversion in. Well, the normal anniversion is 15 degrees. But uh, many of these people we're talking about were 60 and 80 degrees uh, internal uh, rotation of the hip. I mean, they were off the chart. And the, the only way their feet got back to walking straight ahead was that the tibias would externally rotate as they healed. Uh, as they grew, sorry. And now the, the women had an hourglass figure. They had feet that pointed straight ahead, but their, uh, hips would wiggle as they walk. And so when I'm in the airport with my wife, I always tell her I'm studying the patellofemoral alignment. (laughs) That's what you're doing. (laughs) Do you think I could get away? (laughs) Yeah. Let me just jot that down. (laughs) And I said, look at her, look at that wiggle. And she's looking at me like she's going to hit me. And, and, but that's why the girls get the wiggle. Guys get the same problem, but they bring another uh, type of deformity to the table we'll talk about. But so in, in essence, what we have is a hip going inward, a foot going outward. And if and the patella, which is caught in the middle, that's supposed to be in the sulcus of that inward femur, now rides on the lateral condyle and sits laterally on the femoral sulcus. So it's perched there just waiting for a tap in sports or a, a fall, or if you're loose jointed, the wrong kind of twist, and all of a sudden the patella dislocates and or subluxes and once subluxates. And once that happens, the medial retinaculum gets looser and looser. And so it becomes more readily, uh, more easily uh, performed uh, when you're going around in sports and walk up and down stairs. So our first thing we have to do is look at these people when they come in and we look at that alignment. It takes this, this patellofemoral exam is simple, takes less than three minutes. You don't have to take a bunch of weird x-rays, look, trying to measure the angle of the sulcus and the tubal sulcus angle, uh, the TS angle, which I always used in my previous surgeries because I would create a zero angle, which was the right thing to do, but, uh, it was in the wrong patients. And uh, what you look, you, you look at a person standing up and you know that the associated maladies with missile malalignment is, first of all, a flat foot. And if you think about it, if your foot rolls inward, 
your patella is going to go further lateral uh, because it, it has to perch in the middle. So flat feet lead to more lateral subluxation. So one of the first things we do is put people in arches. We give them a medial post with medial high arch, and that brings the patella back in a little bit if indeed they're flat-footed. The other thing you look at is, well, what's the, uh, the uh, uh, axial alignment? Is there varus or valgus at the knee? Is there, uh, is there a knock knee or is there a bow leg? Well, with these girls, generally speaking, they're knock kneed and or they've developed tibia vera to compensate for that, but it's still an overall a valgus position. Now, if your knee goes inward, then your patella is going to go outward because it's floating. So that's another contribution. So you got a valgus knee, usually a flat foot, and you got an internally rotating femur. And so your patella doesn't have a chance. It's, if it doesn't dislocate early in life, it's going to wear out totally uh, by the time you're a grandma. And I, I get women all the time now that I, I call them grandma's knees because the patella is totally worn out on the lateral side. And uh, the lateral condyle is bone. And uh, the approach to them is somewhat similar, but just a different stage of the life. So you've got, then what you do is you sit them down. You can flexion extend their knee and you feel the crepitation, which you know they're already going to have because the patella is wearing out. In this position, you can also tell how well the patella centers because the patella should assume the center of the femoral sulcus at 90 degrees of flexion. That's normal. Well, many of these people, it didn't. It still stayed lateral. And in some people, uh, the patella would actually, uh, in flexion, dislocate the real severe ones. Okay. Uh, that's where guys would start building up the lateral condyle or, or deepening the sulcus in order to prevent that to happen. And indeed, it does. And I did that years ago as well. But it changes the mechanics of the knee so severely that they get long-term arthritis. So... There's no reason for that. If, if, as we talk, you'll find out why. But in any event, you check and see the, the position of the tubercle with the center of the patella. And that tells you that, that, uh, that the angle is probably in favor of lateral subluxation. And you keep that in mind because if you come back and do the surgery I'm going to talk about, you do not want to reverse that angle. You still want to bring it back to zero. Finally, you put the patient on their back. And you do what are called patellar glides, uh, medial and lateral. Uh, you can do that with the knee straight and with the knee flexed about 30 degrees. And there's two, and there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, if you do it straight, you'll get pretty much the idea of how lax their tissues are. Most people should sublux about two, about half a patella medial and about half a patella lateral. And if you do what's called a passive patellar tilt, which was, uh, uh, invented and made famous by Tom Rosenberg, another former partner of mine. You raise the lateral uh, patella off the lateral condyle, and in a girl, it should be a positive angle compared to the transcondylar axis, and in a boy, it should be neutral. Well, uh, if they're really loose, it's going to be 10 or 15, whether it's a boy or a girl, and if they've had surgery, it could be as much as 60 because they were over-released. That's what that was called. And so you check that out. And then what you do is you flex the knee to 30, 40 degrees and do the same maneuver. And what should happen is, is that the patella should now have engaged the sulcus and it shouldn't be the same. It should be tighter. Well, in many people, the sulcus is so flat that it remains the same. 
So even if they flex their knee to 30, 40 degrees, the patella will still dislocate because it hasn't engaged the sulcus. Now, there's another reason that doesn't happen, and that's associated with miserable malalignment is what's called patella alta. And what happens is the patella, in association with these other problems, and it's all genetic and it's passed from family to family, uh, the patella sits too high. And at 45 degrees of knee flexion, the patella should assume uh, the tip of the patella should be at the intercondylar notch, both on x-ray and in your palpation. And if it still sits up on the top of the femur, and it appears to be looking at the, the ceiling, you've got patella alta. Now, in days past, and on still an occasion, but, not, but rarely, we would go in, and as we're doing that proximal and distal patella realignment, we would cut the tubercle, and we would move it distal. And we could move it a centimeter too far, and we would move it medial, or we'd move it centered. And there were all kinds of ways of, of trying to decide what that tubercle sulcus angle would be, plus uh, bring the patella into play with the sulcus. And uh, the logic was, it's like a golfer. If, if you've got patella out, you're, trying to, you're on the green putting, and you've got a 30-foot putt, if you've got patella alta, and you've got a three-foot putt, if you've got a normally aligned patella. So it's pretty obvious what's going to happen with that patella every time you putt it. And so, at least in my hands, I don't make very many 30-foot putts. And, and so uh, we would bring it down to make it a three-foot putt. The problem is, is that it would increase the compression and the joint reaction forces on that patella so severely that the pain was actually increased, even though they didn't dislocate, and it, the patella would wear out much quicker than if you had done nothing at all. Uh, and so uh, that, in, in doing that, is probably another one of those surgeries that needs to be uh, considered very carefully and not done very often. Uh, but in any event, you're going to look for patella alta. That finally, and by the way, this is all now taken about one minute, and you lay the patient on their stomach, and you bring the eat, you bring the leg up to 90 degrees of flexion, the knee at the knee at 90 degrees of flexion, and you flatten the foot with your hand so that it's like they're standing, and you now get a thigh foot angle. Okay, the thigh foot angle is the uh, angle that's formed from the middle of the foot to the um, femur and the line drawn from the hip down to the intercondylar notch. So now you have an angle formed from foot to thigh, thigh foot angle. Normal is 15 degrees. Okay, and, and uh, demonstrate that when people walk in the sand or the snow, they have a slightly outward footprint, right? They, their feet are slightly uh, turned outward. That's the 15-degree angle of the thigh-foot angle. Okay, that should be 15 degrees. Okay, then you look at the hip, and, and now you want to know what your hip motion is. You want to find out if there's enough hip motion to compensate for the thigh-foot angles because when you're at heel strike, your hip has to rotate to bring your foot straight, and it better have enough internal-external rotation to adjust for that. So what you do is you, you now take the, the uh, flex knee and you're going to rotate the hip inward and outward. And the way you can measure that is you put your hand on the, on the trochander of the hip and you go inward and outward. And you can tell when the trochander hits your hand, that's, when the, the, that's the end of that motion. 
normal is 60 degrees inward and 60 degrees outward. Okay. And, uh, of course it should be equal left to right. So a 15 degree thigh foot angle, a 60 degree internal rotation, a 60 degree external rotation is what is expected to be the normal alignment. Now, these people with miserable malalignment will have a thigh foot angle of anywhere from 30 degrees to 45, and they'll have a internal rotation of 80 degrees, 70 degrees, and a minus external rotation. They can't even get the neutral with external rotation of their hip. They're locked outward. They're locked inward. So the hip has no ability to compensate for the bad thigh foot angle. And so they have all kinds of anterior knee pain because of the pressure on the patellar surface, as well as recurrent subluxations and dislocations, depending on the other anatomy factors, including, including the shape of the patella and the femoral sulcus. So you put all that together. And if they haven't had surgery and they're young, what you're trying to do is work with their hips. Traditionally, we always would say, oh, your quadriceps are too weak, your vastus medialis obliquus muscle needs to pull the patella over, and so we're going to strengthen that near extension. Well, unfortunately, that isn't how the quadriceps works. The quadriceps works as one complete vector, not four different ones. And so uh, the VMO, if it fires, it's because the rest of the quad fires, and if you got a VMO, people tended to get better. And so if they had hypermobility without a lot of, of uh, femoral antiversion, then therapy really did help patellar subluxations, and that's always the first step. However, if you're still trying to do a non-surgical approach, which you should with this, you have to work with the hip. You have to increase the external rotation of the hip. You have to increase by stretching and by strengthening the abductors and external rotators, external rotators at the hip. This allows the hip to compensate for what's a malaligned foot to the sul sulcus. Can I, can I ask something, Lolly? Lonnie? Um, you, you mentioned the measuring of the hip internal external rotation. You said in the miserable malalignment, the uh, there was there's no external rotation. Is, is this a bony limit? Yeah, it's a no, not necessarily, and uh, and and it can be, but it's also that these people that have grown up from a, from being you know the, they're the kids that sat in front of your TV with their legs outward, right? Right. right. Uh, and they're sitting on their knees instead of like an Indian. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, um, uh, the, uh, they've developed the contractures from an early age. So you can work to get some motion back. And that's one thing we've noted is, is that we can take some people and they don't need a lot. They just need to kind of get back to neutral. And generally you can do that just with, a, uh, and the way I do it is a lot of stretching. I teach them how to stretch their hips. But I send these patients to the Pilates instructors because Pilates gives you the core strength you want. And it also it will strengthen when you use the Pilates boxes, if you're familiar with it, you can rotate the hip inward and outward as you do your Pilates work. And that helps strengthen and, and helps the hip gain motion. And indeed, most of the physical therapists that they've kept up on their trade now will tell you. When they get patellofemoral problems, anterior knee pain and dislocating patella, they work with the hips primarily, not the quadriceps. It's not a quadriceps weakness necessarily. The weakness comes from all the pain, 
But if you can get the hips working properly and control the pain, those quads will come back. And so uh, you can get enough motion. You don't need to be normal, but you can get enough that it gets rid of the anterior knee pain and reduces their subluxations to where it's livable. Okay. And so, yes, you can, you can make a difference. There are some severe ones where you can't and, and, uh, they continue to have severe pain or they've had surgery and they can't, and they continue to dislocate. But now things have been so screwed up with the, with the lateral retinaculum and the tubercle that you're, you're really looking at a surgery, not therapy from the beginning. And so what's the goal? Well, the goal is to take it back to what we talked about. And that is you want a thigh foot angle that's not, not over 15 degrees, uh, which generally means the tuberal sulcus angle is close to zero. You want a, uh, medial retinaculum that has integrity as far as the ligament goes. And you want a lateral retinaculum that's balanced with the medial retinaculum. So it's not excessively tight. Uh, you want patella glides that are about two quadrants in each direction. And, uh, you want good hip strength abduction and external rotation strength and motion. So that's your goal. And, and so whatever that patient presents you with, that's your goal. Ultimately you start with therapy. If it doesn't work, then you go to surgery. Unfortunately, a lot of the surgeries are ill-designed as I've told you, cause I was part of that. Um, and, uh, if you're going to do a surgery on someone and take the risk of an anesthetic, you better do the thing that gives them back the alignment I just suggested, which generally means you're going to be cutting uh, bone and rotating like the pediatric orthopedist. So if, if a person was lucky enough to escape, to escape, unlucky enough to escape the, the orthopedic surgeon that takes care of children and get become an adult, then they've got us, they have to deal with, and, and we have to be more logical in our approach. So, if what I will do is generally work with the tibia first. So what I'll do is say, okay, you failed your therapy. You're still having all kinds of anterior knee pain up to patellar dislocations. And this is a continuum. And it used to be, I never would operate on anybody with anterior knee pain. Now over the years, I've developed a strong confidence to do so. And it's very successful. And so what you do is, is you bring that thigh foot angle back to 30 degrees, back to 15 degrees, 10 degrees, which reduces the tuberal sulcus angle, which makes uh, a lot of those, uh, the guys that believe in that happy because you do the osteotomy above the tubercle, L- not below. Lonnie, can I ask you a quick question on that? What, what do you use for preoperative planning there to, to guide you to be able to do that osteotomy with accuracy and, and, and end I up? I just did. Yeah. I just did. I do it on the table. I am far more accurate in what I do when I put them on their stomach than when I send them off for CAT scans. The cat problem with the CAT scan, and I did that for my studies, was you couldn't rely on the CAT scan. They never, the radiologist has to position the leg just so, so you properly get the rotation of the femur. But they have a difficult time doing that, and most of them don't understand it. And so you're far better off measuring it physically than you are trying to measure it by radiograph. We definitely, so we definitely won't I be looking for any it, sponsorship from radiologist uh, companies <laughs> for this yeah, for this well, particular. <laughs> it, it's just what it is. Now, no, it uh, is what it is. Yeah, and and you can see it on the X-ray if you look for it, particularly a standing X-ray, because when I, I, you always get your standing X-rays because you want to know if they're in valgus or varus, right? The other associated deformity with 
mesial malalignment is recurvatum. And that is, we all know, you have to have about five degrees of back knee. And the reason you have that back knee is to allow the, fem- uh, the patella to come superior and settle into that super uh, tubercle groove that gives you extension. If it gets trapped below that, you don't get full knee extension. So you need that to settle in. Well, you have to go into Rika bottom to get that. Well, so, uh, many of these kids don't have just five degrees. They have 20 or 25. They can push their knee all the way backwards. I mean, it's uh, you take one of these kids. I always I bring people in to just show them. I go, okay, stand up, push your knee backwards. And everybody kind of gets sick to their stomach because it goes all the way back uh, a bunch of degrees. And then you go, okay, now turn your foot and uh, behind you so it points to the wall behind you. And they rotate their hip and can point the foot to the wall behind them. So they're standing straight ahead, but their foot pointed 180 degrees posterior. And and that's a pretty impressive picture. Those are the worst. But there's all variations on that theme. And so uh, the idea is to correct that. But what I don't, as a last resort, I, I might end up bringing the patella inferior uh, because it's so, uh, patella alta is present. And what I've done is still not successful. We'll talk about that. Or uh, sometimes you have to go to the femur and rotate the femur outward and then the tibia inward to get better control of the severity of the angle. Some people that believe like I do uh, start with the femur and they'll do a femoral osteotomy and rotate that whole leg outward, which to me obligates you to cut the tibia and bring the foot inward. Otherwise, you're going to be walking like a duck. And so I like to start with the tibia first because it corrects 95 out of 100 of these problems without having to cut the femur. And when you start cutting long bones like the femur, it's a big deal. And you have more complications. So I start with the tibia. Heals fast. And it turns out being... It sounds, oh my God, you're going to cut through the tibia. You're going to rotate my foot. Uh, it sounds horrible. But in, that, in reality, it's no more painful than what's called a tuberculoplasty or a McKay procedure. And it's no more dangerous because I've seen neurovascular problems from screws going out the back of the tibia from a, from a McKay. Uh, and uh, yes, you can cut them with a saw blade as, as you go through on the osteotomy. But at least you have direct vision and you can see it. So knock on wood, that's not happened, but can. So I do what's called an, a, a tib- high tibial derotation osteotomy. And if I've lined them up properly, the patella alta doesn't matter because now you can make the 30 degree putt. putt. You're, it goes straight down the, the pike like it should. So you don't have to screw with the uh, tubercle by moving a distal and increasing the joint reaction forces. You don't have to necessarily particularly make the sulcus deeper because now you're lined up again. And so it engages center of the sulcus, even though it may be somewhat flat. And your, your uh, constraints, uh, the soft tissue constraints about the patella are lined up properly so it stays in the middle because you have proper guide wires. And every once in a while, you do deepen the sulcus, but only at the proximal portion there can be a bump where there should be a dip and you can take, and it's not articular. So you take up the synovium in this area, you make it a dip 
with a burr and you put the synovium back, but you haven't messed with the articular surface and it helps the patella settle better and it helps it get into that super uh, condylar uh, groove I was talking about. So that's the surgery that I do for the most severe people. On occasions, you have to do the femur too because what you do is if you've done the internal rotation of the tibia and they don't have enough capacity to externally rotate that hip, they'll walk pigeon-toed. And that means you have to go up and externally rotate at the hip to get the foot straight ahead. And I don't know, in the last 20 years, I've maybe had to do that two or three times is all. So the majority of people, kids, anybody that's got this problem, uh, you can do with working with at the knee and in the tibia. How many, like, how many of these cases are, are you seeing typically in a year? Uh, Just ballpark. They're not, they're not common because there's other presentations, but for the ones, the recurrent patellar dislocations, and the, I would, I, I've done hundreds of them, of course, probably over a thousand. And, uh, you know, we looked, I, I about to pull them all back again for a long-term paper. We did publish this in the sports medicine journal and we published it on, uh, on two occasions and, and I presented it forever, but I, I see guys doing the same thing over and over again. They do lateral releases when they shouldn't, they do tubercle transfers, uh, which they're going to pay a price for later. And, um, the, the proper alignment is what I've described and it keeps the compartment pressures balanced. And, and sometimes you have to do with not just a derotation, which is a uniplanar osteotomy, but you have to do a biplanar, bipolar, or tripolar osteotomy. And what do I mean by that? Well, if they're in excessive valgus, you've got to do an opening wedge at the time you do your osteotomy from the lateral side of the tibia because you want to take them out of valgus, right? So you put a wedge there at the same time as you derotate them. That puts them neutral, and it brings the foot in line with the tubercle, okay, to the sulcus. Sometimes they've got severe recurvatum. So now you've got to do a triplanar osteotomy. You not only put a lateral wedge, but you put an anterior wedge in order to prevent severe recurvatum. And because that get, that's a very disabling problem for them because their knee keeps going backwards and it hurts. And so it's a triplanar osteotomy. Those become a little trickier, but it's all done on the table and you can measure it simply by looking at the thigh foot angle and the angles that you have in front of you as you do the cut. And you can mark the tibia and where you rotate to, you know, 30 degrees, 20 degrees. So it's all done in that way. Uh, they, the recovery is for the uniplanar very quick. Usually these kids are off crutches in a month. Um, the others, it may take six or eight weeks. Um, the, interestingly enough, once the bone heals and they've got their, uh, motion and strength back, they're, they're very, very active. And, uh, the success rates now in my, in, at least in my experience are in the 90%. And so, so you're, you're very confident then with your rotational osteotomies or derotational osteotomies, but is this commonly used? I mean, I, I have a feeling it's still um, somewhat controversial. And well, I'm it's only why. it's only controversial for those that don't understand it or know or have done it. Uh, the minute someone experiences the result, 
and what you've done, what you get, it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, jaw dropping, honestly. Uh, the, uh, people, yeah, they don't want to cut the proximal tibia. They don't want to take the risk of a neurovascular injury, but that happens with any of the, uh, tubercle plasties as well, as I mentioned. And, uh, uh, the, uh, in fact, I, I definitely have seen it. I can't tell you how many times from errant screws being run through the back of the tibia. And, um, I just, when you talk to people and you explain it, you down, you downplay it a little bit because it's rather radical. Right. And you go, Oh, they go, okay, well maybe one in a hundred has that problem. Uh, uh-uh, it isn't. It's about half. It's about 50%. And yep, you don't want to operate on them, but if you have to, you ought to do the right thing. It's not a lateral retinacular release. Now, if their five foot angle is normal, you can do a proximal realignment where you simply do do a lateral release and you do a, uh, a medial retinacular reefing. That means their thigh foot angle is normal and that works. That, that's most commonly done in your athletes who've had a contact injury where the patella was knocked off. And uh, you don't have to do derotations. You don't have to do all that stuff. Because everything else uh, is, is, is normal. Yeah, yeah. yeah, everything else is normal. And, and regarding and, uh, lateral release, are you, you have any preference over lengthening versus release? I lengthen. And the, and the reason is, is that it leaves a hernia on that side. And it's, it's a little deforming. And so I tend to uh, do a fractional lengthening, either uh, like a pie crust, or I do a, uh, a lengthening where I slide and attach the retinaculum uh, to the edge of the uh, uh, synovial attachment to the lateral side of the patella. So it's basically closes the joint. If I do it arthroscopically, then I just do a release. But, you know, as I've traveled around the world and, and lectured and, and performed various surgeries, it was interesting to me that... Uh, at least in Amsterdam and the surrounding area of Europe, they did a, they would go in and do just the lateral retinaculum through an open incision, but leave the synovium. Yeah. I was surprised that they left the synovium uncut because it leaves the patella tilted and it'll scar back down. So you have to really cut both. And then when you cut both, you can do it in a, in a Z plasty way where you can lengthen. And that's when I do an open lateral release, that's how I do it. You know, Lonnie, yeah. I, I, I want to say that what I'm loving about this is the history, right, Mika? I mean, it's you've taken us on the journey here from all, all the way from we really ran away from these things. We didn't know what to do uh, through all the um, the progression of the approach to this problem um, through, through your experience and then uh, even through the eyes of some of the other surgeons. And I, it, it's it's kind of amazing, really, to see it all go full circle. But what I want to make sure we don't miss here, and, and I think it's been covered several times, but if we can, if there's a way for us to um, consolidate this message, so you, you've got this forum here with us today, considering all the history of the approach to this uh, recurrent uh, dislocation, what is your, what, what would you want to be the key takeaway? What's the advice that you would give to, to uh, anyone listening? on, on, uh, they, you want them to take away from your experience? Well, first of all, I think we would all agree that we always want to try a conservative approach to any of the patella maladies, which include now that they didn't before the hips, uh, lateral retinacular stretching, arch supports, 
activity modification. Uh, you can say weight reduction, but no one really ever does that. And, uh, and that's your approach. But when you fail, when they fail at this, for whatever reason, you have to be prepared to do the right thing. And to determine the right thing means a very focused but easy patellofemoral exam that's based on the mechanics and the mechanical axis of that extremity. Not necessarily what the uh, uh, Lauren angle is or what that, you know, it's all based, that's all subtle stuff. The main thing is what's the axial, what's the frontal axis of the limb? Can you balance it and can you bring the patella into line with the sulcus properly? And whatever it takes to do that, you do that. Now, I'll tell you another surprising fact is that it's more often on one limb only, not both, in these individuals. And it can be bilateral, but it's in, that's in the minority of times. I can virtually tell a person which knee they that is bothering them after the exam without asking them because it's so consistent. And, and so, uh, that's where I became more and more confident with just people that was severe anterior knee pain. They still have really bad pain. They show all the same stuff and generally they're a little more middle-aged. And, and so as I got braver, I took this approach to even those people and have been extremely successful. And I think, are we still there? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Uh, my screen just changed, so I'm not sure. Uh, but anyway, I, so I, I obviously tried to talk people out of this kind of surgery. It's, 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 it's got potential complications, even though the recovery is rather fast of all the kids I brought back after doing this surgery to see how they're doing several years later, I asked him, I go, would you do it again? Oh, absolutely. Are you, uh, no, I said, are you glad you did it? Yes. Does your patella and your knee feel better? Yes. Would you do it again? I'm not so sure. It hurt like hell. <laughs> and, yeah. and so I always warn people, this is going to hurt, right? Uh, they, when I talk to them before surgery, I, you have to put a little mark on their knee to make sure you're doing the right knee, right? Mm -hmm. So I write a yes on there, and I ask them if they know what that means. And they go, well, yeah, it's the right leg. I said, no, that's Chinese for this is going to hurt like hell. <laughs> and, and so... Uh, that's it, it is now I've found some ways to reduce the, the pain actually, because the pain comes from the cancellous bone bone that tends to bleed after you've rotated. Right. Mm -hmm. So I found some good bone product that seals that osteotomy site. So it doesn't bleed and the pain is reduced r remarkably. So is it like a, a wedge or, or a putty or something. Yeah. Once your wedge is in there, you want to seal it. And there's some good product out there by different companies that, is a putty that then solidifies. Yeah. Uh, Stryker has one, uh, Bright Medical has one. You can, you'll find them out there. Uh, and, um, they, it seals the, uh, the osteotomy site. So it doesn't bleed and it hurts less. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great tip. I, Lonnie, I gotta tell you the, such a quality story that you've told us today and 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 you've really guided us in here to where to be successful with this particular you know treatment plan um i know for me my take my main takeaway is going to be that I, I really need to spend more time at the airport looking for wiggling uh, <laughs> <Exactly>. uh, hips <laughs> which i'm excited about and i obviously will refer them 
listen to ben, you. Ben, I think there is a, a question still hanging out there from following on from what Lonnie's been saying, and that given that you no longer have fellows, who do you abuse nowadays? <laughs> <laughs> my PA, perfect. poor PA. <laughs> perfect. Well, yeah. that's perfect, Lonnie. I think, um, you know, I think we're we're, we're going to wrap up there. But I, I cannot thank you enough. I, you know, what a fantastic journey. And uh, Mika, anything to add to that? No, it's it's, uh, it's great talking to you. I've learned a lot, and um, I'm sure our listeners will will love to hear about this. All right, gentlemen. Thanks for the time. I appreciate the the honor of being involved. <laughs>